If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be uh, camping out in verses 14 through 21. Or if you have your electronic devices, you can go on there. Before I begin, let me just open with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to teach your word, proclaim your word. Thank you for the opportunity for us to gather together to learn and study your word, Lord. Guard the words of my mouth so that they may honor you and bring you glory. Give us ears to hear what you have for us today. Open up our hearts and our minds to receive your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So, it is New Year's Eve. Tomorrow brings the new year. And what does that usually bring? The new year really usually brings what for us? Resolutions, right? How many of you guys have resolutions for the new year? All right, all right. Some of us have resolutions of spending more time with family. Slow down, be present, exercise. Healthier diet, go back to school, finish school. Save money, invest money, donate, give. Yet, how many of us really stick to these resolutions? How far do we go? How easy do we give up? Resolution is defined as a firm decision to do or not to do something. The quality of being determined, its aspiration, intent, Aim, purpose, resolve. Nothing is wrong with having these goals for us and our families. However, I want us to go into this new year differently, both individually and as a church. Pastor and theologian J.D. Greer once said, the goal of a lecture is that you leave with information. The goal of a lecture is that you leave here with information. The goal of a motivational speech is that you leave this place with action steps. But the goal of a gospel sermon, the goal of teaching the Bible, is that you leave worshiping. And that's my aim. That's my goal for you this morning. So with that being said, let's look at our scripture for today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 21. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed the message of reconciliation 
to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a key text along with Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, and all of Scripture on what it means to be reconciled to God. I'll read Romans 5 for you real quick. Paul says, same author, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. If justification depicts us being saved legally, because justify means you have a right standing before God. It is a legal term. You have a right standing before God. You are guilty before God. You have sinned. I have sinned. But God declares you innocent because of Christ. By grace, through faith. So if justification depicts salvation legally, then reconciliation depicts salvation relationally. Relationally. Therefore, based on our scripture this morning, I want you to ask yourself these three questions. These three questions. If you want to write them down, if you want to put them in your, your phone. Am I living life compelled by the love of Christ? Number one. Number two. Am I living life as a new creation in Christ? And number three. Am I living life as an ambassador for Christ? Let's look at verse 14. Now we're going to break down the text. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. That word compel in the Greek is control. It denotes pressure that produces action. Paul is emphasizing that the magnitude of Jesus' love compelled him to serve Christ wholeheartedly, holding nothing back, zealously, passionately. As an act of grateful worship. It also means to hem in. It is used, for example, in Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 63, when it states that the soldiers were holding Jesus in custody. When the soldiers were holding Jesus in custody. John Calvin puts it this way. Everyone who truly considers and ponders the wonderful love that Christ has shown us in his death cannot but be bound to him by the tightest chain so as to devote himself to his service. So as to devote himself to his service. 
Verse 16, from now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. The from now on then is another way of saying therefore, which could point back to the preceding two verses, verses 14 and 15 that we just read. Paul is making this statement on the basis of salvation and his own experience. On the basis, the foundation of salvation. Before he became a follower and apostle of Christ, he was known as Saul of Tarsus, a zealous Pharisee who persecuted, imprisoned, and oversaw the execution of Christians. He was knowing or recognizing Jesus and Christians from a worldly perspective. What does this mean? What does this mean? Meaning, when he saw Jesus and he saw the Christians, he saw them from an outward perspective. He saw Jesus as a liar, as a heretic, and that his followers were to be condemned just as he was condemned. That is how Saul of Tarsus saw Jesus and his followers. However, he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ, and his life changed forever. His life changed forever. Not only did he view, his view of Jesus change from seeing him as liar to Lord, he began to look beyond outward appearances of others. He began to stress that everyone should be seen from a spiritual perspective. The biblical truth that everyone stands guilty before God and must be reconciled through faith in Jesus Christ, just as he was. I'll give you an example of the woman at the well. John chapter 4. Jesus and his disciples are traveling. And he says, I must pass through Samaria. Now, if you know anything about the history and the culture, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. Their typical greeting was to spit at one another. In fact, when they would travel to Jerusalem, they would purposely go around Samaria, which would add another day or two to their travel just to avoid the Samaritans. But Jesus said, I must go to Samaria. So as they approach, he sees a well. His disciples go off to get some food. And he sits down at the well. And it's around noon. It's in the the highest heat of the day. And this woman comes to the well. So she's there. she's She's gathering water. And he asked her for a drink. So they had this dialogue. I'm going to sum it up for you. So he says, can I have something to drink? And she says, how are you a Jew speaking to me, a woman, a Samaritan woman, and asking me for a drink? He says, if you knew who was asking for a drink, you would ask me for water, and I would give you living water, and you would never thirst again. So the dialogue continues, and he he starts, they start going back and forth about, oh, well, uh, Jacob uh, built this, this well. Do you Jews know any better than us Samaritans? You guys worship at the temple. We have our well. And so they're, they're, they're going back and forth. And Jesus says to her, he says, go and call your husband. Right? He says, go and call your husband. And then Jesus says, she says, I have no husband. He says, you're right. He says, in fact, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. 
give a little context clues there. That's why she was going to the well in the heat of the day. Because no one wanted to be seen with her because she was considered as an outcast. People were looking at her from a worldly perspective. Outward perspective rather than here. And so she's like, oh, you must be a prophet. You must be a prophet. And he ends up revealing himself. He ends up revealing himself as a Messiah. It's the first time he ever publicly revealed himself as a Messiah. And catch this. Not only was it the first time he revealed himself as the Messiah publicly, but he revealed himself to a woman whose testimony was not seen as valid. And not only that, to a Samaritan woman. To a Samaritan woman. And she goes off running. She goes off running. Her life has changed. And she tells everyone, come see a man who told me everything that I've done. And through that ministry, the Samaritans were coming to the Lord. How many of us have felt like this woman? Judged and condemned by others because of our past? Felt like an outsider? Considered yourself a mess and in need of help? Let's look to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. The phrase, in Christ... Again, Paul is driving the point of salvation. He says the foundation, the basis of everything that we do, how we live, how we talk, how we interact with one another, is on the foundation of Christ and the salvation that you have in him. In Christ speaks to having union with Christ, which speaks to the person's salvation and the benefits of the gospel given to the believer. In Christ, we are justified We have a right standing before God. In Christ, we are sanctified, meaning we are continuously being conformed to the image of Christ, becoming more like him. And in Christ, we are glorified. When Christ returns, we will be glorified as he is glorified. In other words, in Christ, we are saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin. And one day saved from the very presence of sin. The three Ps. Saved from the penalty of sin. Saved from the power of sin. And saved from the very presence of sin. This is what Paul means when speaking about the old has passed away and the new has come. When Christ resurrected from the grave, it was the dawning of the new creation. When he resurrected, it was the dawning of the new creation. The restoration of the Garden of Eden, which believers get to take part of until it's consummated at his return. I'll give you an example of this. When we read John chapter 20, the resurrection, okay? The Bible talks about Jesus is the second Adam or the last Adam. This is because the first Adam, get this, I'm going to bring everything full circle for you. And this is what Paul is trying to get at here where the first Adam was in the garden and he was disobedient at a tree 
the second Adam, was obedient to the Father, even to death on a tree, and resurrected in a garden. You see it come full circle, that Jesus is reversing everything that Adam dropped the ball on. When you read John chapter 20, Jesus is mistaken for a gardener. Because Mary says, says, she says she thinks she sees a gardener. And she says, sir, tell me where you've put his body. The, he was tending to the garden. So you see this beautiful symmetry from the fall of Genesis to the resurrection of Christ. This is what Paul is talking about. That the new creation has been ushered in. That the second Adam has restored, is restoring, is reconciling. But just doesn't end with him. It doesn't end with him. Paul continues in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. To be an ambassador is to operate as a representative on behalf of a higher authority, bringing a message from that ruling authority and expecting a response to said message as if the ruler himself were present. As if the ruler himself... We're present. Gospel means good news. Gospel means good news. And in that time, in that culture, what would end up happening is when an emperor or a king would go into battle and they would win the battle, they would win the war, they would send out what? Ambassadors proclaiming the good news that the battle has been won. This is what we are ambassadors for. Christ has called us to be his ambassador, to go out into the world and say, the battle's been won. The battle's been fought. The battle's been won. Christ is reigning. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is reigning at the right hand of the Father. And he has called us to take part in that and proclaim that message to others. Making his appeal in the Greek is the same verb used as comfort. That he's making his appeal through us. In the Greek, it's the same verb as comfort. In other words, God is urging us to enter into his gentle embrace and endless love. His hands are not on his hips. His arms are not crossed. They're wide open. They're wide open. However, however, this does not mean that there is no confrontation and comfort. There's no confrontation and comfort. It does not mean that. Let's look at the Samaritan woman at the well. Notice what Jesus says to her. He confronts her anguish. He confronts her anguish. This woman that is an outcast by society, she's in anguish because no one will welcome her. Most likely what ended up happening in that culture in that time is that 
her husbands would send her away, not giving her a certificate of divorce, according to the law of Moses, and they would keep her dowry, they would keep the money that was owed to her for themselves. And so she would just get remarried, so on and so forth. She was in anguish. Jesus confronts her anguish. Therefore, calls her to eternal satisfaction found only in him. He confronts her anguish and thereby calling her to eternal satisfaction found only in him. Not only does he confront her anguish, but he confronts her sin. He confronts her sin. Therefore, calls her to repentance for the forgiveness of her sin found only in him. He confronts her misunderstanding of worship. Like I said, they were having that dialogue about the well in the temple. And he says, a day is coming. A day is coming where everyone will worship in spirit and in truth. I am looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. So he confronts her misunderstanding of worship. Many of us have had a misunderstanding of what worship is. We have family. We have friends that have a misunderstanding of what worship is. But Jesus, in his grace, calls her to true worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. And lastly, he confronts her misconception of God's absence in her life. He confronts her misconception of God's absence in her life. How many of us have felt that God has been absent in our life? We're going through things. We're falling in sin. We feel judged by others. We cry out to God. We pray. And yet we feel that God is absent in all that. Jesus confronts that. And he reveals what God is doing. What God is doing. He basically says, God is not absent from your life. I'm right here. I had to come to Samaria. Why? Just to meet you. Just to meet you. Let's look at the last verse. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll read it again. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the crux upon which the entire passage and, and the entire passage rests upon and is the point of Paul. The preposition for, okay, he says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. That preposition for in the Greek is huper, which means it can be translated in the place of. In the place of. The substitute. This speaks to the fact that Jesus Christ is our substitute on the cross. Paul would have had Isaiah 53 in mind. Isaiah 53 verses 5 through 6 states, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was upon him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. 
for the iniquity of us all. So in closing, if you're here this morning and you are in Christ, then I challenge you not to enter this new year with your focus on your resolutions. But I want you to enter this new year as a new creation, compelled by the love of Christ to be an ambassador of reconciliation. As I stated before, yes, these things are good. These resolutions are good. But Christ is our firm foundation. Therefore, enter the new year as a new creation compelled by the love of Christ to be an ambassador of reconciliation. Do not regard others from an outward perspective, but with the eyes of grace. And show mercy just as God has shown you mercy. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, I pray that you come to Jesus. Repent. Seek forgiveness. Ask for his forgiveness. Be reconciled to God. And live in newness of life. Compelled by God's love for you. Compelled by God's love for you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for everything that you've done, everything that you are doing, and everything that you will do for us, in us, and through us. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for what you accomplished on that cross, the reconciliation between us and the Father. We thank you for the Father taking initiative and seeking us when we naturally do not seek him. Help us, Lord, by your spirit, compel us, compel us to love as you love, to live in newness of life as a new creation, and to partake in this new creation, this dawning of new creation, as you are restoring everything that we take part in it as ambassadors of you, ambassadors of your gospel, proclaiming the good news of your love, your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.